Welcome back to 5WH. My name is Joe, and I like to talk about world events off the beaten track. Covid, Trump and Brexit will appear only where strictly necessary, and I hope you'll enjoy hearing about some things that most news organisations skip over. I'm offering this using the 5WH format, that is, asking the questions who, what, where, when, why and how, in no particular order, depending on the topic. The idea of using these questions is that it should give you a simple bottom line upfront, providing the context to dig further or to chat about round the metaphorical water cooler. They should also give me a bit of a handrail and stop me vanishing down all the rabbit holes. Today, we'll be having a look at the political drama unfurling in Peru, where they've swapped out three presidents in about a week. See, America, there is no need to take this long just to switch once. It should also act as a refreshing break from the slightly more warry topics I've been covering lately. So we'll start with our what, as normal. On the 9th of November, the Peruvian Congress passed a vote to impeach the president, Vizcarra, on the grounds of moral incapacity. This had the effect of immediately removing him from office and replacing him with Manuel Marino. Marino was intended to act as interim president until July 2021, when the next presidential elections were scheduled to occur. Informing his government, Marino surrounded himself with figures perceived to be on the far right of Peruvian politics, as well as a large number of senior military personnel, with particular emphasis on the Peruvian navy. Almost immediately following this legislative coup, widespread protests took place in Lima, the capital, as well as other major cities. In several instances, these protests turned violent, leaving several dozen people injured and at least two people killed. Following less than a week as the interim president, Marino was compelled to bow to public pressure and was replaced by the Congress by a man called Sagasti, a former World Bank official. This appears to have somewhat cooled temp- tempers, and protesters have, broadly speaking, returned to their homes and businesses. The appointment of Mr. Sagasti was also accompanied by a rally in the market, suggestive of confidence in the short-term stability. We're now going to jump into a quick where. Peru is located in the northwest edge of the South American landmass, neighbouring, working clockwise from north, Ecuador, Colombia, Brazil, Bolivia, Chile, and, covering the entire western half, the Pacific Ocean. Uh, in terms of other key geographical factors, the country is heavily mountainous and is a centre for global copper mining, which forms a key part of the economy and also a major political constituency. In terms of cities, the capital is Lima, where most of the protests were centred, particularly those that turned violent and fatal. The protests were fundamentally nationwide, however we'll be focusing on Lima as the epicentre of this particular set of events. So now we'll jump into our who, which is probably one of the key points of this particular story, bearing in mind that politics is just interpersonal relations. For the sake of simplicity, we'll be covering the three presidents of the last week, with a few other uh, ancillary characters being mentioned in passing, and we'll cover this in order of presidency. So we'll start off with president number one, Martin Vizcarra. Vizcarra was elected as a vice president to Pedro Kuczynski in 2016 on the ticket of Peruvians for Change. He had previously served as the governor of Mocagua, minister for transport, and the Peruvian ambassador to Canada. He rose to the presidency in 2018 when President Kuczynski resigned, having been filmed allegedly buying the vote of a legislator prior to his own defeated impeachment. Uh, this itself was caused 
by the apparent receipt of funds from a scandal-beset construction company. Vizcara is somewhat unusual from a political perspective, in that he appears to have stayed aloof from party politics, despite being a key figure in Peruvian politics, in indeed being the president. He appears to have succeeded on this basis by building his public support on the platform of anti-corruption, although unlike some other erstwhile swamp drainers I could mention, uh, Vizcara has actually taken some proactive measures to carry through this promise. Indeed, it appears to have been what's led to most of his political dramas over the last year or two. Just in terms of his popularity outside of the House of Congress, it's worth noting that a recent Ipsos poll shows that nearly 80% of Peruvians would have preferred him to finish his term. This flies in the face of the fact that he was successfully impeached by a supermajority of legislators, so you can see the conflict brewing here between the Peruvian population and their elected representatives. I now have the uh, pleasure of introducing you to President number 2, Manuel Marino. I promise you he is absolutely in no way related to the sheep that make such cosy outdoor equipment. Marino is the elected representative for Tume, or Tombs, spelt T-U-M-B-E-S, I apologise, my Spanish pronunciation is atrocious. Uh, he was serving as the President of Congress, con somewhat confusingly named, as he's about to become the President of Peru. Uh, the role he was serving in is analogous to Speaker in the US House of Representatives, and he was a member of the centre-right Popular Action Party. He's been followed by allegations of corruption and nepotism uh, throughout his political career, and these allegations appear to have a firm basis in reality and Peruvian law. Specifically, his mother and both of his brothers were awarded government contracts for unspecified services while he served in Congress, in direct contravention of Peruvian anti-graft legislation. Marino denies the allegations, and while it's worth noting that the award of these contracts is a matter of record, it is possible that he was not directly responsible for granting them. Stating the obvious, however, I'm not a proving qualified lawyer, but my reading of the laws as is suggests his lack of knowledge doesn't make this grant of contracts any more legal. Despite Popular Action's notional position as a centre-right party, Marino's actions upon ascension to the presidency suggest his own politics are actually a little bit further right than centre-right. Indeed, those opposed to him have suggested that his focus on appointing ex-military or currently serving military personnel to his cabinet is suggestive of something close to fascism. Although we should take everything with a pinch of salt, as understandably Peruvian emotions are running somewhat high right now. Marino's ascent to the presidency was directly on the basis of constitutional procedure, where a president is impeached or steps down and the vice president is unavailable, or in this case... The vice president has already jumped to the presidency. Uh, the speaker or president of Congress is eligible to take that place. It's therefore clear that at any point impeachment of Vizcarra was under discussion that Marino's presidency would be a natural follow-on effect of such an impeachment. Uh, as such, it is clear that a majority of Peruvian legislators were supportive of him taking power with ramifications that we'll touch on further in a little bit. Broadly speaking, Marino's support base is the broad right of the Peruvian political spectrum, including members such as the leader of the opposition, Kiko Fujimori, the head of Popular Force, a more nationalist right-wing party, and the opponent to Vizcarra and 
Zinsky in the 2016 election. In addition to being a political heavyweight in her own right, Fujimori is the daughter of former President Alberto Fujimori, and as such a scion of one of Peru's more powerful political dynasties. Following her defeat, she swore to rule from the legislature, and it appears that the impeachment is a culmination of this effort. And last but not least, we have Mr. Sagasti, a definite compromise candidate, and the leader of the only party which, as a bloc, voted to oppose the impeachment of Vizcarra. His appointment is probably the closest you could get to reappointing Vizcarra without the legislature being seen to do a complete U-turn. Having conducted his early career with World Bank, Sagasti returned to Peru in the early 90s to form the centrist Purple Party, of which he remains leader. So now we'll roll on to combined when and how. And we'll start with a bit of ancient history in 2016. This saw the election of Kuczynski and Vizcarra as president and vice president respectively. This also represented the right's second consecutive presidential defeat to a centrist uh, collective and established them as an entrenched right-of-centre opposition. Then, in 2018, as we've suggested before, Kuczynski resigned following a failed impeachment and then further evidence of his impropriety. This naturally led to the appointment of Vizcarra as president, stepping up from VP, and the creation of circumstances that meant there was no vice president in office, setting the stage for Marino's ascension in the case of any other impeachment or removal of power. Then, 2019 saw another mini-constitutional crisis. Vizcarra compelled the dissolution of the Peruvian Congress and triggered fresh legislative elections, after they reached an impasse over his proposed anti-corruption package and a proposed amendment to the judicial appointments process. While this was enabled by an explicit procedure in the Peruvian constitution, it did not leave him particularly enamoured to those who gained re-election, and indeed resulted in the Congressional Balancing Act being tilted further against him. Moving into 2020, we see a series of investigations being conducted into Vizcarra by a hostile Congress. Matters then came to a head in September. At their core, the accusations boiled down to a tenuous connection between Vizcarra and payments made to an associate for speeches to a government ministry. Marino succeeded in gaining enough votes to trigger an impeachment trial on 10th of September, requiring a simple majority, but fell short of the supermajority required to convict following the trial. Indeed, the total vote count between the triggering of the trial and the attempt to convict was actually lower it was alleged, and legislators clearly felt that this may have some validity, that the recordings central to the impeachment case have been tampered with to some extent. As a result, on 18th of September, Vizcarra was exonerated. Having failed to convict him once, the Peruvian Congress decided to show their northern friends how things should be done and opted to impeach Vizcarra a second time. On the 9th of November, 105 legislators voted to impeach Vizcarra on the basis of permanent moral incapacity following his alleged mishandling of the COVID-19 pandemic. Upon being informed of the result of the vote, Vizcarra left the government palace stating that the allegations were untrue, however he would not seek to legally contest or in any way resist Congress's power vested from the constitution. Although not directly related to the charges, it is also likely that some of these votes were earned by recent media accusations of corruption during his time as governor of Moquegua. I feel it's worth noting here that, as in any other place, impeachment is not a legal process, it is a political process, and therefore there is no true burden of proof, simply a 
threshold of votes. It's worth noting that Vizcara continues to refute these allegations and that no legal proceedings on a criminal basis have followed on from his impeachment. Immediately following Vizcara's departure from the government palace, Marino established himself in the building, formed his cabinet, and the fun began. On the 10th of November, almost concurrently with President Marino forming his cabinet, protests began. As indicated earlier, nearly 80% of Peruvians polled suggest that Vizcara completed his term was their ideal outcome from this situation, so the emergence of thousands of people onto the streets was not in itself surprising. By the 13th, protests were in full swing, countered by extensive deployment of riot police in Lima, who clashed with some groups. Whilst elsewhere in the capital and in many of the regional cities, protesters remained numerous but generally peaceful. By the 14th, protests continued, and a conservative estimate suggested that 27 people, including 11 police officers, have been wounded seriously enough to uh, be counted in statistics. The use of tear gas and rubber bullets were reported throughout Lima. By the 15th, the number of injuries had risen extensively, with at least two protesters reported killed. As a result of the building pressure, Congress informed Marino that he should step down or face his own impeachment. Long story short, Marino stood down. Leading us on to President Number 3 being appointed by the Congress on the 17th of November. President Sagasti, President Sagasti's appointment appears to at least somewhat cool tempers, as protesting appears to have ceased in all meaningful ways. So now we need to talk a little bit about why this has happened, and I think it would be remiss of us to ignore the issue of anti-corruption. So what we need to consider is that corruption is endemic at all levels of the Peruvian state, and this is a, an opinion that is not mine, it is it's not one of President Vizcara either. It is the opinion of independent non-governmental organisations, including the likes of Transparency International. There is a significant proportion of Colombian congressmen who are under investigation for corruption-related issues. And this has led to a situation where many legislators have an inherent vested interest in opposing anti-corruption reform, while the majority of voters express open dissatisfaction with the actions of their representatives. Considering this, it shouldn't require a great deal of hindsight to, to consider that impeaching the president on the basis of his anti-corruption platform would not garner congressmen significant support amongst their electors. That said, Vizcara cannot be seen as blame-free in this circumstance. I, I don't want to be seen to be victim-blaming, but by virtue of his lack of a political party, he has removed himself from the mistrust of the Peruvian people, who generally are sceptical of the shifting sands of their political system. Parties in Peru generally don't last very long, and they change their colours regularly. But it also means that very few of the established political class had any direct interest in supporting his presidency. We can see this quite clearly by the fact that they impeached him twice in two months on different matters and have resisted him since coming to power. If anything, you can simply view Vizcara as a lesson that the only way to change the system is to be involved with it, and inflicting change from the outside is incredibly difficult, and he's paid the price for that. It's relatively easy as well to construct a narrative where the people liked Vizcara, didn't like Marino, but do like Sagasti, and you've got this sort of 
narrative of the people's will being imposed upon legislators and things like that. And, and there is an element of that. It may well have been that personal politics were essential, but it's also worth considering that people may not have necessarily supported any individual candidate, but may have perceived the actions of Congress as being fundamentally anti-democratic. As we've looked at earlier, polling suggests upwards of eight, or sorry, upwards of seventy, roughly eighty percent of uh, Peruvians wanted Vizcarra to complete his term, whereas a clear supermajority of legislators voted to remove him. This, it is possible, therefore, that the unrest we witnessed in Lima was not driven so much by support for Vizcarra of himself as much as discontent with the legislature operating in the exact opposite interests of that voiced by their population. That said, I would always be cautious of applying a uh, higher philosophy to mob antics, although it cannot be said that people were not aware of the political issues and the anti-democratic risks of having a legislature sort of going rogue and deposing presidents. You know, we, we shouldn't assume that the vast majority of people were acting on these higher principles. It is rarely the case. I also feel that I should, although it does pain me deeply, uh, name-check COVID-19 here. Peru has been hit particularly badly by the pandemic. There's a series of uh, demographic and geographical factors that make the population incredibly tightly packed and lacking access to certain resources that means that lockdowns are if not impossible, certainly impractical to implement on a daily basis for most citizens. This in turn appears to have somewhat shortened the fuse of the population when they're observing the antics of the political class. While many legislators cite Vizcarra's handling of the pandemic as a key reason for his second impeachment, the actions of the population in response to the impeachment suggest that that opinion was not widely held throughout the country. So to accurately gauge what impact the pandemics had on this uh, the, this political moment is hard to ascertain, but it's got to be considered as an additive factor. And I guess the final part of the why we've got to address is, why does this matter? Why do we care? And I think what we can look at is that it would be all too simple to go, well, we had a president, he got impeached, got replaced by someone that was generally unpopular, unpopular and disliked, that person then got you know, replaced after five days of, you know, not too violent protests. In the scheme of things, compared to protests elsewhere in the world, this this appears to be a win. You know, relatively little harm. I mean, two, two fatalities are undeniably sad, but in the scale of things like the Arab Spring, for example, I mean, I think anyone in the Middle East would have absolutely begged to have had such a relatively bloodless transition of power. But I would argue we need to look beyond this possible upside here and look at the slightly more threatening considerations. Ever since Vizcarra's uh, rise to the presidency following the departure of Kaczynski, Marino has been in place to become president should any impeachment fatality or other event occur, and you know has, on multiple times, attempted to engineer a legislative solution to get him into the presidency. This is fundamentally concerning because impeachment is designed as a process to remove someone who is unfit, not simply to remove your political opponents. Thus, 
the fact that a majority of the Peruvian legislature was willing to support what frankly appears to be a fairly overt attempt to just seize power does not bode well. Ultimately, we've swapped president three times in a week, but Peru has not changed its legislative makeup in that time period. And they've now gone to a point where they've replaced Vizcarra with someone who's, you know, tangentially similar, you know, centrist, but left the legislature with that right-wing skew in place, setting themselves up potentially for exactly the same problem to repeat itself. Now, we do have the next presidential elections coming in July 21, and it's possible that the fallout of this recent incident will be enough to keep everything sort of strung together until then. But, you know, pressure is going to remain high, and I think we should keep an eye on it. So I think that pretty much wraps up my summary of what's going on in Peru at the moment, and why you, me, the rest of us, should care about it. Uh, thank you all for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, please hit the follow or subscribe or like button on whatever platform you're using. And I'd love it if you could join me on Facebook or Instagram. Just whack 5WH into the search bar and join me there. Uh, thanks, and I hope to see you all again soon. Cheers. Bye.